are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Job chapter 9, we are in a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Job. Job lands right before the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs in your Bible. So if you find those larger books, you can go backwards just a few. And there's another large book named Job. It looks like Job. Uh, You can turn to chapter 9 with us and we are there. told you last week that we are uh, kind of in this little ping-pong debate between Job and his three friends, and they're floating some ideas back and forth to each other. Of course, Job is the great sufferer in this story. God, in his sovereign providence, has allowed uh, Satan to take everything away from him, and now he's left with only the breath in his lungs— And he does have three friends, at least he thought he had three friends. Uh, We're learning quickly they're not being very friendly. Um, And they have some things to share with him. Last uh, week we met uh, Bildad, one of the friends, the second of the two friends. Uh, And these three friends represent all of the world's wisdom, a collection of the world's wisdom, the best the world has to offer uh, in terms of wisdom. And we're finding out it's quite foolish. Some of the things we hear, and last week was no exception. Uh, Bildad uh, especially leaned into the idea of religion last week, uh, and Job uh, was confused, and we get Job's response to Bildad this week. We discussed last week how religion is, in a sense, all about you, and this is we know this to be true. We, we experienced this as we went through the book of James, right? We talked a lot about religion and how it works. Uh, but Bildad reemphasized this same idea of religion, that God is just. And of course, if you just plug and play your own righteousness in God's economy, that God will be forced to bless you. How could God not bless you if you simply did the right thing? Uh, that's how God works. God is just, and by virtue of his justice, if you are going to act justly, he is forced to reward you. The converse in Bildad's mind is also true. Because God is just, if you are experiencing bad things from his hand, it must be because and only because you are acting unjustly. So therefore, if you can just fix your problems, God will be forced to fix yours. That's how it works. Simple religion, simple plug and play. God will move for you on the basis or on the quality of your ability to move towards him. Bildad wanted to reinforce with Job that actually God can be manipulated or controlled on the basis of your own piety. 
And of course, as we talked about last week, what we see in the gospel is that God does not move on the basis of our piety. He moves on the basis of his promise. He forever and always will and for always has been a mover on the basis of his own will and volition. And of course, last week, uh, Bildad was trying to get Job to understand the idea of religion or simple fairness or simple justice, that God is mostly concerned about justice. And we learned last week, God is totally concerned about justice, but he's also concerned one step further. He's very concerned about mercy. Bildad wanted Job, uh, if you look back at verse 20, Bildad wanted Job to understand that God will not reject a blameless man, so do what's right. And of course, what we learn in the gospel is that actually there was a time God did reject a blameless man. And he did that so that we, the unjust, might receive something magical in this world, mercy. And God wants us to understand that, yes, there is fairness. Yes, there is justice. God is very concerned about holiness. But even more so than that, I can say it that way, God is mostly concerned that you understand and come to grips with his mercy, which are what his promises are anchored in. Religion says God will move for you on the basis of your piety. Yes, God is fair. He is just. He is right. So now you need to do your part. This leaves Job with a sense of powerlessness, as you can only imagine. Can I ask you, how's your religion going? If God were to put that same burden on you, yes, God will act for you on the basis of your own piety. So if you can just plug and play your own righteousness or plug and play your own piety, then God will be forced to act. Can I ask you, how are things going? Would God be forced to look your way this week? Or would he be looking somewhere else? This is now Job's conundrum and something he has to now respond to. As you can imagine, it would get pretty tough. Powerlessness is not a position we often like to be in. Uh, The simple moments of life when you're at lunch with your friends and you reach back for your uh, wallet to pay the bill and you realize, oh, stink. I left it at home. That moment of powerlessness where now you are at the begging mercy of your best friends and, of course, you're never going to hear about this, never going to hear the end of it for about another year. Hey, remember that one time I bought your lunch because you forgot your wallet? We hate that sense of powerlessness. This comes uh, as well in our own Christian circles. We look at the sin we just can't overcome. We're just forced to recognize, I am struggling with this. I can't overcome this. I feel like this is a battle I will never win. It will never leave me. This was Paul's struggle. I know what to do. Remember, we talked earlier in this series that if information had the ability to solve our problems, we would all be healed by now. It's the problem. Information doesn't heal us. We know what to do. We just can't stop doing it. We know what we should be doing, but we can't continue on in it. Wretched men that we are. As we're learning this week, the health of a loved one leaves us feeling powerless. How can we give to those who are facing death's door what they truly need? We can't. Powerlessness is what we all face. I had a conversation this week with one of my students. I teach uh, a ninth grade Bible class at a Christian school in town. And I had a conversation with my students. I had a very uh, short um, 
little drops of gospel opportunities all along the way in his in his life. And he asked me before class, hey, do you think after class we can get uh, a chance to just talk with each other? So I invited him into the gym. We sat down on the bleachers and we talked. And he he was very, very open with me. I was actually surprised with just how honest he was about his Christianity. I, I often have sermon illustrations about people who are honest, but rarely do I actually talk about honest people or get to hear honest people. I kind of have to filter, oh, this is what they're saying. So a lot of my sermon illustrations are about honest people, but I don't actually meet honest people. You know what I'm saying? All right. Um, this was an honest person. He starts a conversation off with, I don't have any assurance of my salvation, is what he was saying. I don't have any assurance. And I could sense his powerlessness. He has no control over his spiritual destiny, what's going to happen. So I just let him talk. Sure enough, uh, again, very honest words. He's like, I'm trying to live up to God's standards. I'm doing my best to glorify God. I'm trying to hit the mark. I'm scared of the rapture, but not because of the crazy things that are going to happen. I'm scared of the rapture because I'm afraid that Jesus is going to look at me in the eyes and say, not you. So I tallied, I just kind of wrote down all the language that he was using. And I wrote down about 10 things, and they all had to do with like, trying to hit the mark, trying to hit the standard, all these things. You could tell he was fully just powerless. And I ended up talking to him. I was like, buddy, you know that like God actually does have a standard. Like You can know right here and right now whether or not you are going to heaven. Like He actually tells you what the standard is, and if you hit that, then you're in. If you don't hit that, then you're out. Would you like, would you like to know? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, the standard is perfection. So I said, let's run, let's run through... And of course, this is like not just being perfect, but this is about perpetually being perfect. It's about always being perfect. Like it's not from here on out. It's like you've always would have had to have been perfect from start to finish. So like let's go through the 10 things that I wrote down and let's find out. That way you know whether or not you're going to heaven. And he goes, okay, okay. I could just, I could just feel like, like poor kid. He just doesn't get it, which is great, which is great. And so we walked through trying, trying to do what's right trying to reach the standard. He did say on the give glory to God, he says, now I've always done that. I've always wanted to give glory to God. And I said, all right, I'll give you one. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll spot you the one. So we had one circle, but all the others were X's. And I got to the end and I, I just put my hand on his knee and I said, are you getting in? And you can see like the tears start to like come up in his eyes. And he goes, I'm not getting in. I said, I know. I know. I'm not getting in either. I ended up walking him through the gospel. But like it was beautiful because I like I sensed this moment of like, this dude is like, he's still feeling powerful. Then we had a conversation and I got to the end and it was like, you could sense this powerlessness. I've got nothing. Like, we've got nothing. And this is Job's problem when it comes to religion. That's the standard. And Bildad wants Job to understand, hey, man, you can plug and play your righteousness right into this situation. You can have all your problems fixed. And Job is like my student. Ah, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this well, man. Not living up to it. The funny thing is, Job even does define himself as a righteous person. He actually says, I am blameless, and I'm still not getting it. I'm the most righteous out of all y'all, and I'm still not getting it. This is what we face tonight when 
we try to answer Bildad's religious conversation. So there's a couple things I want us to see tonight. Number one, Job's going to answer, and first of all, he's going to give us his own desire. Job lays out uh, very clearly what he wants from this whole situation. So we're going to look at God's mercy and our own powerlessness. God's mercy and our own powerlessness. What is Job's desire? Well, he makes it very clear, verses 1 through 4, Job's desire, 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said to Bildad, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job does make this concession in his mind about Bildad's statement of religion and says, this is sensible. This makes sense. I know this to be true. This seems right. This seems just. This seems fair. This seems workable. Plug and play religion. Get it. Karma, if you want to say it that way. But then he gets right to the heart of the problem. How can this be? How can I actually be made right before God? Interesting, uh, interestingly enough, this uh, language here is not – Job's actually not trying to attain perfection. At this point, he's kind of already given that up. He's given up this thought of living perfectly. So he's not, he's not saying, how can I get uh, – or, or how can I do right before God? He's saying, how can I get right before God? How can my problem be rectified? How can, how, how can it be fixed? I need a fixing. I don't just – I can't live up to this standard. I need something outside. I need something fixed. He's not trying to attain perfection at this point. That's gone. But he wants to be made right. And that's his question. It makes it very clear if one wished to contend with God, good luck. We're talking about somebody who is wholly other than who we are. He is wiser. He is stronger. This is much about the holiness of God. He is not even human in this sense. Later on in our passage, we'll talk about God is not a human. We're not dealing with apples to apples here when it comes to even perfection or righteousness or religion. We have to have a different category when we talk about God. How are we going to be made right with him? Again, even the blameless Job here can't reckon with God. Job here actually recognizes our biggest need, our biggest desire. Actually, I think this would be Job's desire. This is Job's heart coming out on full display. He wants more than anything, not just his problems to go away. He's not looking for relief from his suffering. Job senses there is a problem between him and his relationship with God. And he says, this is my issue. This is my ultimate problem. But I have a lot of questions more than I have answers. When it comes to our biggest need, we, like our own inability to manage our suffering, we are truly powerless to attain the solution of our faulty problem with God. And so he ends up laying out his problem. He has his desire. He wants to be made right before God. But he's stumbling over a couple things here that Bildad really has a hard time making sense of. The first thing that that Job wants to point out to Bildad is the reality of God's transcendence. 
Okay, now this word needs to be explained here, especially for you kiddos. Get your sheet there. Transcendence. That's a big, fancy, multi-letter word that basically means God's bigness, right? He's, he's unlike us. He's transcendent, okay? Um, it's not lost on me that we're about to witness Joe Burrow and his transcendence here in a couple minutes, okay? He is not like any of us, okay? We can begin to start thinking like he's probably not like a lot of other QBs in the league. He's starting to set himself apart in a kind of a transcendent way. And in this way, Job's going to lay out, listen, when we talk about God, we have to run into his transcendence. He is not like you and me. What we need to see, first of all, what, what Job's trying to say in God's transcendence, talking about God's transcendence, is that what we can see about God is actually above us. It's beyond our pay grade. What we can see about God plainly is above our pay grade. He says this in verse 5. He removes mountains, and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun, and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. What we can see plainly about God in the mountains and in the stars and in the constellations and in the oceans, what we can see about him, actually the meaning of it is above us, man. We we have a hard time grasping what's truly powerful behind it. We can, we can see a little bit of its effects. We can see the ocean kind of wave in. We can see the movement of the mountains, but the power behind it, that's uh, time out. It's above. It's above us. Can't comprehend it. He does great things beyond our ability to search it out. Scientists are still discovering things about nature and creation that as we watch them on planet Earth or blue planet still just blow us away. But also there's something to be seen about what is above us, what is there above us in God and his transcendence actually at points it can't even be seen. There are realities of who God is that are above us that are unapproachable or invisible. Behold, verse 11, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. It's where we get lines like uh, some of our famous hymns, like immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. There's something about even the glory of God that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on because we can't see it. There's no ways for our brains to contain it. He is transcendent. And this, for Job, ends up being a problem because, again, with 
sin, how am I going to relate to this kind of God? How can I begin to see something I can't even begin to see? How can I comprehend something I can't comprehend? It's impossible. There's a little bit of a warning here for us. I hear a lot of Christians, and I I know they're well-meaning Christians. I've used this phrase. I'll continue to use this phrase. It's a Bible phrase, so I'm not afraid of it. But at the same time, there's a little bit of warning here to us when we start talking about this idea of the glory of God as if somehow we can bring the glory of God to reasonable or manageable means where actually we can attain to it, right? We'll say things like, just live to the glory of God, or just, as I said to my, as my student said to me, I'm just trying to live for the glory of God. And I simply just want to ask, like, how are you doing with that? Like, do you... Have you ever seen God in his glory? I mean, I haven't. I've heard accounts of it, and I've seen people die because of it. Like, it's not a happy scene when we see God in his glory. In fact, God is gracious sometimes, and he hides people in rocks, or only shows the backside of his glory so that God doesn't just, like, strike them dead with his glory. It's like, so how you doing? <laughs> trying to live for the glory of God? Man, I'm just trying to steer clear of that thing, to be very honest with you. I'm just trying to walk very gingerly from one side of my living room to the other, trying not to get struck by the glory of God. How are you doing? There's a little bit of a warning. I understand it. Actually, what we begin to see is that God's glory is also hidden. God's, God's glory is, we'll see in a little bit, it becomes imminent. It's hidden in the cross. And we see that that's actually the height of his glory. That's actually the pinnacle of his glory in ways that we can actually in, engage it and in, digest it and believe in it and trust it. But when we talk about the bigness of God or the glory of God in his light or in his beauty or in his perfection, my friends, those are above our pay grades. Th- those are things that even angels look at and they wonder and they're like, oh man. There's something about the holiness of God that brings a kind of Warning or shots across the bow of our sinful lives that should cause us to fear him and pause and wonder how are we even not just eviscerated in front of him because of it. Job humbly recognizes that he has no ability to live in, approach, search out, or behold God in his glory unless God in his mercy comes his way. So when Bildad says, hey man, if you can just clean up your act, if you can just live to the glory of God, you're going to be fine. And Job's like, this dude's moved mountains, all right? Like, we should probably pause on us attaining any sort of glory. God is transcendent. But there's also another thing that Job has to wrestle with. What if this glory shows up? And there's the possibility of God's eminence, that he's here. He shows up on the scene of your life. And in many ways, this is what Job feels like God has done to him. God and his holiness, God in his transcendence has come down and has made a mess of his life. And he's still in confusion over it. What would happen if I was able to get face to face with this transcendent God? Job has to wrestle with this, and this is what he says in verse 14. How then could I answer him? Choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right in other words, I haven't done anything to deserve whatever, I, whatever I've received. I haven't, I'm in the right here, but yet even still, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my judge. If I, assume, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why would he? 
For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but he fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who could even summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? What would happen... If even you and I this week were able to get face to face with God and his transcendence. What would you be able to say to him this week? What would your religion prove to be to you this week? In light of our own powerlessness to relate to this kind of God on his own terms, it would be a very scary thing to approach God in this way. And this is what Job actually gets honest. I'm actually grateful for Job's honesty about who God is at this point. It almost makes the idea of religiosity almost just laughable, almost foolish for us to think that somehow by us just existing and doing a couple right things throughout the week, that we can be rightly related to this much of a powerful God. But yet, this is the struggle that Job actually is facing. This is actually a, a, a deep theological struggle. We don't have time to unpack it all. I will, I will just say a couple things because, again, this is an actual realistic theological thing we have to come to grips with here. Um, how, how is God using suffering in a way that is merciful, not throwing out his justice? How, how does God do this, what's the, what's the mechanism whereby he's actually doing this? It, it's, it is a little tricky. I will, I will say this, Job 42, 7, we read this uh, early on in our study, that God does say about Job that everything he says is right. Okay. It puts this passage in a little bit of a bind, a little bit of a pickle, uh, because there are some very harsh things that he says about God here, especially at the end. For instance, you want to look at verse uh, 22. It's a pretty tricky thing that he says about God. It's all one. He's basically saying two truths exist at the same time. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Almost kind of saying God's just angry all the time. And his anger is executed and it doesn't matter who's in the way. Best you can do is just stay out. And I want to say actually here, yes, God is right, of course, in saying that what Job has spoken of me is right. That's Job 42.7 where he says that. But you also have to understand Job saw everything rightly through the eyes of faith. That is to say, as he is a sufferer, from his perspective, he is seeing everything and processing everything clearly through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith. In other words, he's actually responding correctly in a faith-filled response. Later on in Job 26, we'll get there. It's one of my favorite passages in this book. Job says this, But behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how a small of a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? 
Job even himself confesses, I only see the shoreline of all that God is and all that he has done. I can only catch a glimpse. So yes, he is responding correctly, but he also acknowledges all that he can see and understand of God is like this little shoreline. It'd be like the, the Mayflower pilgrims arriving and calling back the Spanish, and they're saying, what's the new world like? And they're like, well, it's very rocky, and the water's cold, and there's a bunch of evergreen trees. And there's like these Native Americans who are out in like the Grand Canyon area, and they're just like, what are you talking about, man? Like, it's like sandy, it's like rocky, it's beautiful, it's like red, red rocks, got some lush rivers, it's great, it's not rocky, what are you talking about? Like, all we see is the outskirts. We can't see what's beyond of God's ways. So Job, yes, he is seeing everything rightly. He's seeing everything through the eyes of faith. He's not wrong in how he's interpreting these realities, but he's only seeing the outskirts of his ways. My friend, this is much like us. The possibility of God showing up in our lives, what we can only see here and now is just the outskirts of his ways. We only see a little bit of who God is, yet we see enough to know him rightly. We see enough to know him well. How has God chosen to reveal himself? Like us, Job is struggling to reconcile the character of God with the works of God. He's struggling to reconcile what is God like versus what are the circumstances he has given me. And often, in our own minds, those things don't match up. So it's up to, if I can say it this way, it's up to us to make sense of it. Really, God makes sense of it. We'll talk about that. But if I'm going to relate to God in any way, it can only happen on the basis of his mercy. It can only happen on the basis of his mercy. And this is what he gets to in verse 15. How then can I answer him? What words am I going to choose to set things right with him? When he shows up, there's only one response we can have. Verse 15, I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Maybe a better translation actually there is judge. To the one who's going to judge, to this transcendent God, when he shows up in his eminence, I have one thing to beg for. And that's mercy. And in that way, again, we can say, Job doesn't have the full picture. He's still wrestling with things that he can't understand in process. But we can also say, man, with the lens of faith, he's at least seeing things right. He's not coming to God with a sense of his own powerfulness to be able to say, God, you have to accept me. God, you must accept me. Look at all that I've done. He's going saying, I'm powerless when it comes to rightly relating to you. The only thing I have to ask is, can you be merciful? Is it possible for you to be merciful? I, uh, a couple weeks ago, ran across an old hymn that I had sung kind of growing up and uh, reintroduced myself to it. Uh, it's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. It's a beautiful old hymn, actually by John Newton, same guy that wrote Amazing Grace. In it, it's a kind of a long hymn, but it's one of those like story kind of hymns that tells a story as you kind of go through it, so you can't skip a verse. There's like seven verses, and like they're like, let's skip a verse. And you're like, nah, you can't do that because it tells a story, so you're going to miss it if you do it. Uh, so like we were forced to sing like all seven stanzas in youth group at the time. It's like how it goes. But at the beginning, he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and in love and in every grace, might know more of his presence. 
And then it tells a story about how God actually answered that prayer, how God delighted to answer that prayer. And he goes on thinking God's going to like this prayer. He's going he's gonna to answer this prayer. It's going to be great. I'm going to know more about him. I'm going to see him face to face. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to have grace. I'm going to love. This is great. And the only thing God gives him is he shows him more of his own suffering and more of his own sin. And that's it. And he gets to the end of the hymn and he's like, God, why? Why is this the way you answered my prayer? And God looks back at him and he's like, because you asked for faith and grace and love. I don't understand. I answered your prayer. These inward trials that I employ from self and from pride to set thee free. God's like bottoming us out so we can have him. And in that way, I look to him as my only source of life and comfort and peace and assurance. And it's in that way, then I have faith. Then I recognize God's grace. Then I know God. Then I see him face to face. And God's like, yeah, like just hang tight. I got you. You're all right. The only way I'm going to relate to God in any way, like Job, is on the basis of his mercy. But it's always hidden in ways, like last week we talked about, his mercy is hidden in suffering. So Job comes to three conclusions. Actually, there's three solutions that he gives. And actually, this is something I can offer to all of us. There's only three solutions. probably more. But Job gives us really good solutions when we're faced with the problem of how are we going to relate to a transcendent God? How are we going to free ourselves from our own powerlessness? How are we going to climb up to the throne room of God and, and demand a sort of answer from him? Demand a, a seat with him. He offers three solutions. One, the one I often choose, happy ignorance. Jesse Stout, who's not here, he was preaching uh, to the kids this week, and he used this idea. He's like, a stout, uh, a stout staple phrase in, in, in our house is, just ignore the problem and it'll go away. That's like the problem, I, that's the solution with my cars a lot, right? Just ignore the problem, it'll eventually just fix itself, it'll clear up, right? How does that work? Well, this is Job's, one of Job's solutions. Verse 25, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and they see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed. That's like little paper boats you send down the river. They, flee, uh, they, they fly by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. That'll do it, right? I just act as if, ah, no problems, no sin here, no suffering. It's all right, we're good. Oh, that doesn't get you by for too long. Verse 28, I become afraid of all of my suffering, for I know, and he's talking to Bildad, I know that you will not hold me innocent. Religion has a way of reminding you of how much sin and suffering you still have, don't, doesn't it? And not just earthly religion like church. Sometimes the religion of progress or the religion of beauty or the religion of pleasure, satisfaction, all of those things, those little religions that we give ourselves to have a way of biting us in the fanny in the long run. They let us know what's really going on in our heart. The reality is we know the pain we feel, and if we forget about it, religion's happy to remind us. Some of us choose to live our lives like this, though, don't we? We just ignore the sin. It'll just go away. If we ignore our suffering or if we minimize it, that's ah, not so bad. It's not so bad. Or we try to manage our suffering. Try to be like, ah, I've got it under control. 
It'll be okay. I'll figure this out. Give me more time. I'll figure it out. And in this way, we're just medicating ourselves with this happy ignorance instead of just coming out and saying, I am powerless here. I have no ability to reconcile myself before God. Look at my sin and my suffering. I can't get past this. Of course, you can turn to hopeless religion. Hopeless religion. How does this work? Verse 29. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. I love that. Even if I wash myself, Bildad, you'll still throw me in a pit of bottomless expectations. You just come after me. Every, even if I say, I'm clean, finally got my life figured out, finally wiggled myself clean of my sin and my struggle, you'll continue to throw me into a pit of bottomless expectation. That's what religion is. One expectation after another. And if you get past one, oh man, there's always another expectation waiting for you, isn't there? It's a tireless burden. But he does throw out one more solution. There is this hope of a human arbiter or a human mediator that he throws out. Of course, again, these are the outskirts of God's ways. Job can only see the shoreline of what God will do. Yet he knows intuitively, spiritually, faith-filled, if there was somebody who could stand in between my sinfulness, my struggle, and this transcendent God who would show up in an imminent way, if there was somebody who could stand in the middle there, it might just be okay. Verse 32, for he, for God, is not a man. This is not this easy, relatable person. This is not this, like, you can just walk up and say, what's up, dude? Like, that's not how this works. God is not a man. As I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. God's not asking you to come his way. There's, there's no, like, hey, just, just get a little bit further along. Come on, man. Like, just come a little bit my way. That's, that's not how this relationship works. This is God. This is a holy other being. And then there's you. There's no coming half, half ways. God doesn't meet you in the middle. This is one God. And then there's us, the strugglers. And he recognizes this. Verse 33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both and look at us both in the eye and say, Hey, can we guys just like work it out? Can we just be friends here? I love you. You love me. We're all good. We just work this out. Job's like, I got no one. Verse 34. Let him take his rod away from me. And let not dread of him terrify me. Then and only then I would speak without fear of him. For I am not so in myself. Or you could say, as the message translates it, as things stand right now, this is not true for me. Job points out some amazing things about his own need of his own heart that we would do well to recognize in our own sin and suffering. First, you need somebody who understands you. You need someone who will put his hand on your thigh and say, I hear you. I see you. 
I recognize your sin and I recognize your suffering. I've been there. You need someone who can go between you and God, who speaks the language of God and also is ready to represent you for your own sin, to go in between you. And you also need somebody who can actually make atonement or appeasement to satisfy God's anger of your own sin in your place. Because again, recognize your own powerlessness. You have no ability to do that on your own. Job stands here and recognizes, I need somebody who understands me. Gee whiz, if I just had somebody who can listen to me and hear me for once. Bildad, you're a moron. You're not listening to what I'm saying. Understand what I'm saying. I need someone who can go between me and God because obviously I can't get God's voice on my own. I can't get him to listen to me. What would I say to him? But I actually need someone to go in between to atone and to appease for whatever I'm struggling with right here and right now. My friend, of course, you know where this is going. Scripture makes it clear that in Christ, my friends, you have all three of these realities. Can I read for you 1 John 1, uh, excuse me, 1 John 2, 1 through 2? Put it on the screen for you. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's righteous. The righteous one. He is the propitiation or the wrath satisfier of our sins. And not for ours also, but for the sins of the whole world. There is somebody who stands not just in our place, but in the place of the world. And presents his own wounds and says, these for them, sir. You have one in your place. Hebrews 4. I give you Hebrews 4. Maybe. Nope. I copied and pasted the same verse into the different thing. So here we go. Listen to Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace so that we might be able to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. See, the reality is Job longed for somebody who was righteous, who was a sufferer, who could stand in between and represent him to God in full righteousness and make atonement for his sins And my friends, we stand on this side of the cross in the resurrection. And my friend, we have it. We don't have to wonder how God is going to be related to us. We don't have to wonder where this mercy is going to come from. If I can only get some mercy from God, we have it. It's presented to us. And so really, God in his transcendent hiddenness has become very imminently revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And we, like Job, must appeal for mercy, and yet we have it. The only hope we have for the sin and the suffering that we face is the mercy of our suffering mediator. And in Christ, God has made us right on the merits of his mercy. This is the reality he has given to us in the middle of your suffering and in the middle of your sin. God is not asking you to come his way. Perfect yourself. Clean yourself up. He has come your way. 
and simply longs that you would just receive his mercy freely on account of Christ. And it's there. To finish the story of my, my student, I didn't just leave him with a buddy, you're not getting in. That would be cruel. It would be very satanic of me to do that. I ended up walking through the whole gospel with him, much like, much like this. I pointed to him the, the suffering of Jesus on the cross. I said, the buddy, thing, buddy the, hard, the hardest thing for, for you, actually, the reality is, it's actually not your sin that keeps you from getting into heaven. Because Jesus paid for that sin. What keeps us from getting into heaven is this own inability to be powerless and to rest on the mercy of Jesus. See, that your biggest problem is not your sin. The biggest problem is you're trying to cover it by yourself. You're trying so hard to get in on your own. And like Bildad, you're not going to do it, man. Good luck. It takes a holy and righteous standard. But if you can actually embrace the reality of God's mercy freely given to you on account of Christ, my friend, you'll find that your, your assurance of your salvation is beautiful because it has nothing to do with you. And that's the hard part. That's the trick because it has nothing to do with you. And that hurts us as prideful human beings. But you'll find your assurance not in what you've done for him, but what he's done for you. And my friend, that brings so much peace to your soul as you trust in the finished work of Jesus. And he looked at me and said, but that's too easy. And I said, yeah, that's, that's why they call it good news. It's not like, eh, news. It's good news. And unless it hears like good news, then my friend, we haven't heard it rightly. Religion is not good news. Religion is terrifying news for people that are actually paying attention to their sin and their suffering like Job was. Job eventually would say, I know my Redeemer lives, and that one day I'll see him. His faith, though he didn't see everything, he understood enough about the heart of God, the character of God, even past his circumstances to find his mercy. And my friend, that's true for you as well. Whatever you're suffering through, whatever sin is still nagging onto your soul, whatever hardship you're facing, the reality is, his mercy is more. It's there for you in the cross of Jesus. And it really is finished. So you can trust him tonight. Let's pray. God, for...
peaceful.